Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. It's Thursday, so we're here at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper. Hey, Michelle. Welcome. Today, we have a great program, so I want to just jump right into it. I think the discussion is going to be pretty heavy, and we're going to learn a lot. Our special guest is Isa Noyolo, who is the program director for the Transgender Law Center. Isa, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks. So we've had you on the television show before. Yeah. Um, it was a very short discussion. We kind of had to speed it up and really get into uh, the meat of your work. So since we have an hour with you, yeah, I'll just open up with our... Uh, just want to go into it. Well, no, actually, I think I think it would be great to give our our you know listeners on Progressive Voices Network and those here at the Commonwealth Club some context, um, yeah. some information about you. So yeah, let's yeah, start. Yeah. Let's start with you. And I know that your work focuses and centers around uh, immigration a lot mm-hmm. with TLC. Um, but tell us, you know, about you. Maybe even how immigration impacted your family. Yeah, um, you know, I think definitely this work of um, doing community organizing and mobilization around immigration is is very personal. Um, My family uh, came to this country undocumented um, in the 70s at a different time and a different sort of political moment. Um, And, you know, I think that the story, though, is the same in terms of just really understanding what is driving folks to flee for various reasons. And so my family um, migrated to the border um, and from the border then, you know, stayed in Texas and then moved to the Bay. Um, and so I think it's, their story is, is, is a long one, but I, it was, I will say that it's definitely one of just a struggle of wanting to figure out how to um, best support their own survival, you know, in terms of what was available to them and then um, and then just for us, you know, I think, you know, I, I'm so grateful to my parents every day that they decided to move to the Bay because I think about my life and I think about just even, uh, identifying as a trans Latina and how much of who I am has been informed by the Bay and been informed by organizing here in San Francisco and sort of the resistance efforts that have happened here. Have you ever wondered what sort of a Texas twang you would have if you stayed there? <laughs> that too. Yes. <laughs> Or just even like what activism would look like, yeah. um, you know, if you started there and what it would look like yeah. now as a trans Latina. Uh, but but you are there a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, you travel a lot For to sure. the border. I think one of the most outspoken vocal voices of the LGBTQ activist community. Yeah. Let's start with this idea of abolishing ICE. Um yeah, because I think that that's going to be a lot easier to navigate between the conversation of views and activists and then also uh, the LGBTQ community and how that applies with what's happening with immigration and and trans undocumented folks who are impacted by this new administration. So abolishing ICE. I've heard many right immigrant activists talk mm-hmm. about or immigrant rights activists talking talking about abolishing ICE. And then I think regular or I should say, I don't know, regular, but some folks who don't really understand the concept or even what ICE does mm-hmm. is is that's a little extreme. You know, that's part of our government. That's part of our yeah. process. And they're there for a reason. Yeah. I mean, I guess just to say that, you know, immigration customs enforcement as it's branded and, and functioning at this moment, um, which is a 
just so folks know, it's like a, you know, funded with like, and resourced, you know, with $4.1 billion <laughs> in this country. And they're actually asking for more right now. Um, so that is a new sort of a new formation, a, a new structure that, you know, happened post 9-11. And I think, you know, the Department of Homeland Security and all that it sort of handles, um, you know, to a certain extent, we've always had sort of this issue of national security, right? And, but the way in which I think it's been rolling out in the last several years and sort of the, the growth of detention and, and particularly private detention, I think is a new phenomenon. And the way that folks are then capitalizing on literally, you know, folks being in detention centers every single day, every single hour, um, there's a profit being made. And so that, with sort of the the rhetoric of criminalization of I think black and brown bodies in particular in this country, um, which is has to do with immigration and also not immigration related sort of um, politics that it is this perfect storm essentially and sort of the the scare tactics that this administration and prior administrations have used to like promote that growth under the guise of, you know, national security. And I think the abolish I sort of understanding and framework is not new in terms of the ways in which folks have been, you know, mobilizing, especially when I think about the organizing work here in San Francisco. You know, I was here in San Francisco and one of my first starts um, was in the Mission neighborhood, um, working in this coalition in the mission called Deporte en la Migra um, to deport you know, the, my uh, ICE agents or whatever. Like, instead of deporting our community, let's deport the agents who are actually causing harm. So, um, you know, that articulation of here in the Bay and in just many communities, um, in Philadelphia, in Seattle, in Texas, along the border, this idea that the, you know, instead of these institutions creating safety, that they're actually creating harm and fear and creating havoc for our communities, um, not just for immigrant communities, but for the whole community. Um, and I think we saw that in particular also just a couple years ago with Santa Ana and all the efforts that the local community made to close down the ICE contract in Santa Ana because they realized at the end of the day that this contract really threatened the safety of the community at large um, in the ways in which people are being profiled, in the ways, in, in the ways that they're being picked up, in the ways that, um, you know, what, what does it mean to resource a city um, or to cover a budget deficit with, on, you know, with these contracts, right? And so I think that it then led to another conversation around revisioning around the facility. And I know San Francisco is also engaged that, in that there has been fights here to not expand sort of the um, jail system here and to re-envision like what does it mean to holistically hold folks who, um, who might be causing harm in the community, right? And like how to address... Um, you know, the ways in which folks are navigating their lives and to, yeah, what are alternatives, right, instead of, instead of just punishment, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I think at the root of it, right, I think our society is sort of obsessed with um, the idea of punishment and punishing others on so many levels, um, even individually. And so I think that um, when I think of the systemic pieces, when I think about abolish ice, it's to me, it's not a lofty goal. It's actually an articulation of what what is possible, what are other alternatives, um, and the understanding of migration being sort of a natural process that is just inherent and embedded in all of us, not just a particular sort of from people from a particular country. Um, you talked about alternatives. That when you by that, do you mean the way these things, communities are trying to re envision holding people or 
is <clears throat> there alternative nationally as far as if you take maybe take this uh, responsibility out of the Department of Homeland mm -hmm. Security? In other words, not make it a national security issue. Right. I don't know if it'd be a set-alone agency or it'd be under some other agency. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that kind of what people are thinking of when I they're think, thinking of so alternative? So there's, you know, it's definitely, again, the, the local, the state, and then the federal, right? That there's, uh, and at the border. There's just like so many other possibilities, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that is, you know, especially right now when we're seeing vulnerable populations being attacked. Like when we're seeing that our government is attacking vulnerable populations, folks fleeing from, you know, persecution from, um, violence from, you know, that are survivors of trafficking, um, that are survivors of domestic violence. And those folks are being like, there's something wrong when we, when, when our government is enacting out these human rights violations at the border and in detention facilities. And I think that's, people don't realize that. Um, and for so long, like we've held on to these values of being leaders in the fight for human rights, like internationally, but yet in our own midst, here in Richmond, California, we have a facility in, in across, you know, across the state here in California and the country, we have facilities in our backyards that are enacting human rights violations and torture every single day. And so that is the place that we're at. We have folks who are seeking asylum in detention facilities right now. We have mother, we have children, we have trans and gender nonconforming folks. We have LGBT folks, queer folks who have faced so much violence, who have faced so much persecution, who have been marginalized on every single aspect of their lives, including their family, and only to be placed in solitary confinement um, for quote unquote their own protection. And I say that because right now there is a case of a trans man um, who actually is a resident who is not even quote unquote illegal, mm -hmm. who is not undocumented. He is a resident. He came into this country from Asia in the 80s and is now in solitary confinement in a Georgia facility simply for being trans, for, for his protection. What? And so that case is really signifying to, like when I went to go visit him, it was this, the moment that he realized that there's folks, you know, trying to connect, he, you know, cause he felt like, I don't know, like it just felt so impossible for him, you know? And so I think there's just so many violations occurring currently and that have happened in the past. Um, and the U.S. has some, has to be held accountable for that. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for bringing up, you know, the, the word realization. I think even for myself, who've inter who has interviewed many people who've been doing this kind of work, I came to the realization recently that we don't actually have a healthy or humane pathway for asylum seekers. Like, let's just start there. Let's not even talk about people who just want to move here. People who are fleeing persecution, fleeing violence, who need their lives, you know, saved. And instead of having a humane process, uh, or what we're throwing them, throwing people who are looking for asylum in cages, in these conditions, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing now, um, that it's they've already been they've are they are being treated as if they've done something wrong mm -hmm. right yeah so I, and i'm looking to you for right like this is this is real like this <laughs> is the truth is this, this isn't you know a uh, an article that's that's well written beyond my intelligence <laughs> on the new york times 
Um, but from a human to a human, this right. is exactly what's happening. And so when we say that these systems are not working um, for for humans, right. this is what we're saying. Yeah, I mean, I think the when I, I you know part of my job is to visit detention facilities across the country, and every single time I am just utterly shocked and shaken to my core, and to to think like this is where we're at as a country, like our consciousness, our humanity, like there's so much at stake in this moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think to me, detention, detention and prison issues are like at the heart of that, right? Like they are really, they show this example of the way in which if we don't get this right, if we don't actually push in this moment for a broader vision of how we hold all of our humanity and the ways in which we're enacting human rights, torture and violence and, and violations, that we have a lot to lose. We have a lot to lose as a country and we have a lot to lose as, as a human race to think that we put people in cages um, and we torture them simply for how they identify, simply for just even the, the bravery and the courage that it takes to leave one's home because of all the sort of obstacles that they're facing. You know, recently I was in Honduras um, and I was, you know, visiting the country to engage local communities and, and trans and queer led organizations around sort of their needs and, and the conditions, you know, and, and Honduras is also a great example of sort of like, what does it mean to organize under such state repression, right? That I think here in the U.S. we're seeing in a lot of ways, but in Honduras, it's like so much more palatable and there's a whole other layer and context and even U.S. intervention around why it things are the ways that they are there. But one of the things that struck me is just the very little resources and the very little support that folks have and this fear around what does it mean to leave my small community and to, you know, especially make the journey all the way to the U.S. border with that hope of just hopefully as a trans person, as a queer person, as a person fleeing political persecution, that at the border I will be met with some sort of like, you know, just, uh, you know, welcoming that is like uh, to understand all that one has faced, right? And so, you know, for the past and in the past years, we've never treated folks at the border in the ways that we're treating them now, who are especially folks that are fleeing po political persecution and violence, mm -hmm. we've never treated them in this way. And so now we're seeing that. We're seeing sort of the antagonism. We're seeing this rhetoric translate into the ways that even folks at you know, Customs Border Patrol are how they're carrying out the interviews and the ways that they're scrutinizing and going with a fine tooth comb and even questioning how violence is, is even a thing for trans people without understanding sort of the larger sort of pieces that are happening. And so um, I, I just, you know, I think that there, there's so many, you know, we're, you know we're, we're very blessed here in the Bay Area, uh, but the conditions and I think the, the realities for a lot of communities, especially border towns, and I would say, yeah, fo um, along the border, the conditions have always been really hostile. And I think that you know, to do in this moment to like say abolish ICE or to come out as an organization or as an individual or to come out to a rally when there is an abolish ICE protest or action that it is saying we want to keep our humanity. We want to like hold these values that we have around how we treat each other with respect and with dignity 
um, and see each other in this way, these very basic, very, very basic human rights principles and values and to like, I think that's a part of the articulation of Abolish ICE. Like, I think that we need to connect to that more. In your job, do you engage directly with anyone in the Trump administration? I don't. Um, I don't engage anyone directly. I think in the past, uh, there was uh, the closest thing I would say <laughs> are with, uh, you know, when, when we are when we go to detention facilities, I'm engaging with those officials. Sure. Um, and, you know, with the officials from Core Civic, which is one of the private um, detention sort of people who are uh, corporations that are profiting or, or uh, GEO. Um, but I would say a lot of the spaces that existed um, under the Obama administration, the like federal working group meetings, is meetings between ICE and, um, and, you know, nonprofits like that doesn't exist anymore. And mm -hmm. so those things, those opportunities, those ways that we connected before to kind of raise the, like that, that doesn't exist anymore. Were, and were those helpful? Because we're, we now look at, of course, the Trump administration is being very, very anti. I mean, it's the core political issue he has being anti-immigrant. But, you know, Obama, of course, was known as the deporter in chief. Yeah. I mean, it, it was not a, a welcoming time for immigration. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say they were helpful. I mean, I would say that they were helpful in trying to kind of push sort of the the contradictions, right? Like what, you know, I think Obama has is leaving a legacy that is that folks are, are you know, like there's this longing of for him to return or for even Michelle to run, you know, like there is this way that that folks are thinking in this moment fondly of that. But also for re the realities are definitely like what you mentioned, right? Um, you know, he was, there was a nickname that he had of the deporter in chief. And so that's also true. Like there's multiple truths. And I think that, you know, those, the ways in which we could hold the administration accountable and institutions like ICE um, are different now. And so I think because some of those spaces are not available anymore, there's like different ways that I think, you know, organizations are having to rethink their strategy and mm -hmm. to rethink how do you actually hold these institutions accountable. And I think one of the amazing things that we're seeing is sort of this rise of, of people power that is happening across this country. Um, just last weekend, um, you know, several organizations, including Transgender Law Center, um, held a convening of 100 trans and gender nonconforming queer LGBT immigrant undocumented allies um, in New Mexico, in Albuquerque, to come together to build power, to support each other, to build, a, a, to strengthen the network, and then to also resist and to show, have a public display of sort of the ways in which this administration, this moment is, is really killing us. Um, and so it was an amazing sort of um, intervention and gathering that really underscored the need for these spaces to really uplift, especially those that are most marginalized. If we're thinking about black immigrants, if we're thinking about trans, trans undocumented women, um, they're often left out of this narrative, right, in the immigration debate. And that's exactly where, I mean, I have so many questions. And uh, <laughs> for those who are joining us, we're speaking with Issa Noyolo, who's the program director for the Transgender Law Center. Um, $4.1 billion. You brought that up at the very beginning <laughs> of our conversation. I just with got an Lynn. email coming over yeah. here and I read that and I was yeah. like, wow. Yeah. Uh, and that's not including the $25 billion for his 
magic wall. Yeah, and so four point one billion dollars for ICE um, is that cheaper in your opinion than you know creating or reforming our immigration policies? I mean, I th- so this four point one billion dollars. I can't even say it. I'm like billion dollars. <laughs> It is, you know, I think there is a cost to that. There, you know, like that is taking away from other resources and other possibilities. And so I think in ways that we think about, again, how do we hold, how do we support um, refugees? How do we support folks fleeing violence? Um, that 4.1 billion is a part of that, mm-hmm. right? That possibility, right? Um, again, for all of these sort of statuses and visas that are now up in the air, like, TPS, temporary protective status, for folks in Haiti, for folks in Central America, for folks in Africa. Like, all of that is, all of that is, that stripping away, like, that is happening for various reasons. One, it's not because there isn't the money or there, there isn't the resource. There is the resource. There is the, 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 uh, the idea of those programs came because, again, we once heralded these values of being like humanitarian aid and really understanding our role in the global context, right? And sort of the, the responsibility that we have as a, U, as, as a U.S. government. And so I you know, to understand that this institution is continuing to ask for more <laughs> and is in the midst of, you know, at, you know, at, in Capitol Hill with, you know, lobbying to receive more money from that amount, you know, that is just another signal of how they are just going relentless to continue to what this rhetoric is actually causing, which is then translating into materially into increasing the budgets of these institutions that are harming. If they get more money mm-hmm. and it goes to ICE and yeah. ICE employs these private detention centers, mm-hmm. I mean, that just is a, right. uh, you know, it's a moneymaker, right? Right. So mm-hmm. uh, we've heard you mention, you know, these detention centers are in our backyard, a G- GEO group or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever they're called. Um, they give money to actually... Um, I'm embarrassed to say, but some LGBT elected officials have even taken their money without knowing exactly what they do. My question is, we have been successful in shutting down these private detention centers. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think? If we, if we, at some point, we've got to kill a part of this system of continuous, you know, financial growth. Uh, If we take the money part away from these companies yeah. making a lot of money off of one individual. I know a friend who's right now representing some of the families who have been separated and she uncovered that each adult, uh, you know, they, the contract is like an average of $350 a day mm-hmm. who are not even receiving, you know, the uh, like basic needs like food, right. um, sunlight, right. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the understanding that ICE is profiting off the backs of so much suffering is just everyone should be disgusted. Like everyone should be disgusted Um, if folks are, you know, there's various visitation groups around the country that visit folks, you know, just because even the visitation means so much. It's like a lifeline to folks that, again, yeah, are like in these facilities that are, you know, just with dreary, no natural sunlight, like the the ways in which folks can even navigate. It's like they say it's not a prison, but it's it's definitely run like a prison. 
And for a lot of the, you know, across the country, there's these contracts with city jails. <laughs> so it's, it is a prison, you know? And so I think that too, like, where do you start? You know, like, how do you start to strip away from that? And I think one is to understand, like, for everyone listening, I think, to understand what your city government is doing. What are your, super, how are your super, city supervisors aware of sort of like, what, what's the situation with um, ICE and their interaction with their city government and local government? That's one way, I think, um, to, from that place, I think that's why we've seen interventions here in Richmond. There's been a successful sort of like, folks started to realize we have this, detention facility and so that through sort of the activism and showing up at at like you know city hall and supervisors meetings and offices that that effort started to really change the way in which we now like that is now um that from my understanding the last that i heard that contract is going to end in the city of richmond and so i think we're starting to see the ways in which local folks are starting to um also see themselves in this moment to like you know, really lead and come together through coalition and really question sort of the city's priorities and values, you know? And so that is one way I think, you know, from another standpoint, from a financial standpoint, I think that there is a way that folks can really understand if they are um, investing their money, um, how their, how their money is being invested and who, like, if, because, yeah, GEO has their hands in a lot of different other investments. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like I think we've seen a lot of interventions that organizations are doing of trying to like understand even who ICE uses all the different vendors it's, use, it's using um, and all the different ways in which um, ICE is incorporating private contracts and, you know, corporations to like keep this machine running, right? You know, including transportation. So I think all those pieces to really understand um, and then from, you know, to then support the organizations that are making those interventions to that are calling for divestment, that are calling to really question why a particular bank or a particular company is supporting ICE or, or involved with ICE, you know? And so I think that is... To me, I, I start to, I'm seeing a lot more of that sort of like that light being turned on. Like there's actual power that people can have, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you're tuning in, you're listening and you're here, <laughs> we're giving you one-on-one activism <laughs> on uh, protecting immigrants. And, and immigrant I think that's community. super important because yeah. right now, like, I think this moment can feel like disempowering. That can feel like this large institution that gets $4.1 billion. Like, how can I how can I like actually start to dismantle? How can I see myself as an agent of change in figuring out how to undo the mess that we've created at to this point? And I think part of it is to really have that understanding and being grounded in that understanding and know that like, it's like there is a groundswell that is happening across the country, not just here in the Bay Area, that there are folks. Um, and I see that in particular with our communities, like those that are directly impacted are standing up and speaking truth to power in this moment. And if that doesn't inspire you, if that, if an undocumented person that's been formed in a detention facility showing up at a rally and speaking their truth, that should, ins that should inspire us to actually continue to push that, to support that leadership um, and to support sort of that truth of understanding of how do we actually get, start to address the harm that has been caused, right? Let me play devil's advocate just yes. in the sense that all those people who were in that det detention center, mm -hmm. they weren't released, right? They were moved to other detention centers, I assume. Yeah. Um, you know, and yes. and ultimately yes. they, they can put them in Joe Arpaio's, yes. you know, 
desert tent cities. Yes. Um, so what is the next step? Yeah. How do you, you know, stop them from playing as the overused term whack-a-mole of just kind of moving? Yes. Well, I think part of it is that, um, yes, so I've, I've definitely heard that argument before. And I, my, my response has always been just that our folks right now, now more than ever, our communities are needing to have, feel some sense of hope in this moment. And so if your city, if your county, if your state can end detention in your area and your region, then I think, yes, folks are going to get moved. Folks are going to probably, you know, then there's going to be a whole strategy to figure out where else can we send them to some other remote place in Montana or wherever. But guess what? The idea that there is this uh, idea that we can actually end detention and end these institutions and this thinking and this logic in these areas is then going to continue to inspire folks. And that's what I've seen. Like the examples that have happened in Richmond, in Southern California, in Arizona, and across this country have then fueled organizers and other folks in other states who have felt disempowered, who didn't know that they had a nice contract, right? And so they're now having conversations that they weren't having five years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and so that's what I'm seeing that it's not just in major urban hubs where a lot of this conversation was happening. It's also happening in rural areas where you might not think that there's like a history of resistance or you might not think that, you know, there's this large sort of uh, political movement that is happening to undo and to abolish these systems. And so that is inspiring folks that is then helping to figure out and make connections of understanding the lessons learned as well. Um, to then figure out what is their sort of advocacy efforts and strategy for their own communities. And I think we can't like to undo a whole system of detention and prisons. You have to go at, at it bit by bit, part by part, state by state, community by community. You know, and I think in this moment of feeling hopelessness, um, I think that the only way to get hope is within community and that community power um, you know, is, is really essential in this moment, you know, for folks to feel like that. It's not just going to be led by one organization that is super recent. It's going to be led by the, the, by the people. That's been the lesson in all of sort of even here, like, and when I think about all that happened um, in the LGBT history movement here, it was led by people. It wasn't led by an organization, you know, and so I think that we need to see that. We need to feel that and we need to be connected to that. Well, what's remarkable, I mean, you bring up a lot of points um, that is just, there's so much going on inside my, my brain, my body right now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, first of all, the LGBTQ community being left out of the narrative. Yeah. And we talk about uh, immigrant rights. And of course, LGBTQ people are very much a part of this. But also as, you know, LGBTQ activists, I mean, you yourself Trans-Latina family uh, background. You talked about even being undocumented. The main when you talk when you think about mainstream media and what they're talking about as far as the LGBTQ movement, it one would would think that the transgender community has been left out of the the narrative mm -hmm. to begin with in terms of this fight for equal rights when it has been trans women of color who have been at the forefront who've been leaders of our movement. And despite the fact that our government, the current administration, history, uh, local cities, states across the country have policies and laws in place that discriminate against you as an individual, as a transgender woman, um, there's so many 
parts of your life that is being impacted Mm -hmm. and discriminated against, how do you keep going? How do you, you know, uh, put a face to to the the issues here that are being impacted? How do you make it so that the narrative for even the LGBTQ movement is that immigration is an LGBTQ issue? Um, You know, so like my activism grew, like it came from a lot of pain and sorrow. Like I didn't, you know, I often say when I speak at colleges and universities, especially like I didn't get recruited at a table, like on a sort of like career day or whatever and and say, hey, do you want a career in (laughs) doing detention work? You know, like I, it was birthed out of a lot of death actually, you know, and so my, I remember here in San Francisco, um, in the early 2000s that, uh, a, you know, a, a friend of mine, Ruby Ordeana, a Nicaraguense um, trans-Latina, who had a very similar story as very a lot of folks who have migrated, you know, suffering so much, um, was murdered here um, and her body found uh, in one of the warehouse areas by Cesar Chavez, you know, just thrown, just like no regard, just, and, and so that to me was sort of this, Understanding that, you know, sorrow and pain is is like I couldn't just that it wasn't, you know, mourning was not enough. And so, you know, I think I say this all the time that I've never not once known not being not going to a funeral or a memorial service or a protest or a vigil um, over the death and, you know, murder of, you know, one of my trans sisters. Um, And so I think that is part of sort of the there's this anger and there's this rage there's this loss of like why why are is our society continuing to target um my people you know my community and so i think that's part of it um i would say the other sort of mate another like important piece in terms of what keeps me going and sort of like continuing to think of possibility in this larger vision Um, in this, especially now in this moment where it seems hopeless, where it seems that this administration is doing all that it can to continue to instill fear um, through tweets, through sort of political rhetoric, through the, like, what's happening at the border, um, through sort of just the, like, the, the really, the messiness and the, like, you know, just disregard of, for people's safety and humanity. Um, is seeing our folks and seeing communities that have very little resources, that have very little support, come together um, and support each other. You know, and I think that's one of the main lessons that I've I've gained over the years at being at Transgender Law Center is that as I've traveled throughout the country, I've seen folks create so much magic, create so much, you know, safety networks and support for their own folks in, you know, out of clubs, out of their cars, in living rooms. And so that piece, I think, is really important to, in this moment for me, to understand, because I've witnessed it, I see what's possible. And we have to, in this moment, really understand and center those that have been, that are directly impacted by the violence, by the rhetoric, by the hate speech, because it is materially transforming and doing something. It is not just staying in Twitter land. It's not just out in the universe. It's actually, it's actually having literal consequences. And I think one of the biggest examples recently that we've, that we've seen is with um, Roxana, mm-hmm. the Honduran trans woman who died in ICE custody. Mm-hmm. She was HIV positive. 
you know, and there was no reason why she should be dead. Like she should be alive, you know? And so um, those kinds of examples and that, and, you know, and, and by the way, that wasn't like the first time that that ever happened, you know? And so that to me is sort of the, what's at stake, what's on the line. And I think the other part is just, I see that in this moment, um, we can't stay in the fear. We can't stay in this frozen place of feeling um, unable to really counteract all that is coming towards us, right? Because um, I think that there's a lot of lessons that we have to remember. And, and folks here in the Bay Area in particular have so many things available to them. Here in the Bay Area, there's so many lessons, there's so many ways in which the culture and the fabric of this city has really been informed by what happened during sort of all this uprising and sort of the the moment where so many of these like liberation movements and, and struggles were happening for folks. And so if we don't remember those lessons, if we don't connect to that history, then, you know, this moment, yeah, is going to seem insurmountable. It's going to seem mm. hopeless. John? Um, I th I'm sure a lot of folks listening are getting inspired by you. Can you name some other people or organizations yeah. that you kind of you see are kind of heroes in this fight right now? Um, I mean, locally, I would say for sure, um, you know, I think TGIJP with Janetta Johnson, um, El Para Transatinas in the Mission, I would say Casa Justa, um, you know, uh, there's just so many organizations in the mission that are still holding it down in the mission um, mm -hmm. that are, even though through the gentrification, like that are still holding on to sort of the cultural history and the richness of what that neighborhood has meant for the community. Um, you know, I think nationally there's uh, Familia Trans Career Liberation Movement. I think there's Juntos in Philadelphia, like another immigrant rights org. Um, there's Mi Gente, another national org that is doing amazing work um, with this tour that they're doing called Chinga La Migra, um, where they're going around and supporting like local communities to say, what is it that you want to do? Mm -hmm. And we will support you with media. We will support you with art. You know, um, speaking of art, Culture Strike is another like Bay Area sort of amazing organization that is bringing and really um, seeing art is not just sort of like like decorative in, in actions, but actually an integral part of the action, an integral part of what it takes to transform um, the cultural lens of what we're seeing in this moment. And so I think, yeah, I think the cultural organizing is really important. I think the political organizing is also really important. Um, and, you know, to me, I, I, I'm always going to be a champion of the, the scrappy grassroots orgs that um, under so much uh, challenge and obstacles are trying to figure it out because well, that's where I came from. <laughs> that's a great segue because... You know, one of my questions touches on uh, the big organizations, the the movement, you know, part of the LGBTQ movement. And while you were listing the where you were, you were listing the uh, organizations that are, you know, John had asked the question. I was waiting for you to bring up, you know, some of the national organizations who currently have immigration as one of the issues yeah. that they care about. And I'm just talking specifically about the LGBTQ national organizations, the wealthy ones, yeah. the ones you know who have millions of dollars as a budget. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, yes, you know, we, we, we need all kinds of organizations in this work, but mm -hmm. how do you feel as being part of one of the, you know, the, the scrappy <laughs> grassroots organizations who 
in my opinion, you are risking your life every yeah. time you go into one of those detention centers or you're at the border, you're speaking, you know, yeah. for somebody even more marginalized than you, uh, you're bringing attention to yourself. How does it, how do you feel, you know, besides TLC and seeing Chris Hayashi out there in downtown <laughs> Albuquerque, your executive director was willing yeah. to go to jail or yeah. be arrested for shutting down traffic for three hours. Where's the, yeah. do you ever ask yourself, where's the rest of yeah. these large pride organizations <laughs> that brings out millions of people or, you know, where my mind is going. Yeah. I, I, I asked myself that for sure. Um, and I think in this moment, I think this question of risk and what are we willing to risk um, what are we willing to put on the line in this moment is an important question I think individually we need to ask um, as an organization, whatever organization you're from. Um, and what does it mean to take a risk that is not just a direct benefit for you or for whatever sort of strategic goal that you've set place for your organization? And I think to me sort of um, that's been sort of my sort of uh, compass point in sort of, sort of the, the things that I put myself, you know, uh, through and in, you know, in, in the line, on the line. Um, and so, you know, I think that there needs to be, we, one, I, I don't think the same old, same old is, is working, you know, in this moment, right? Like sort of the, I think petitions are great. I think raising visibility is great. I think all those things that, that, you know, kind of help to like bring folks together. I think all those things can still be, but we can't just stay there. Right. Like we can't just think of um, immigration or detention issues as just sort of a lobbying effort. Mm. Right. Or le a legislative effort. Like I think, you know, there's been so many incredible interventions that have happened here in California. Right. Even in the non-immigration sort of context, like for trans rights. Right. Like I'll use that example. Right. There's all these amazing protections and policies the state of California has. Yet trans folks are still like, you know, calling um our helpline, mm -hmm. our legal services project. And they're calling from California saying, I'm still not allowed. I'm still being harassed in my workplace around my transition or I'm not, you know what I'm saying? And so there's so many folks that are still facing discrimination in their high school. There's still so many trans youth that are facing isolation here in California, here in the Bay area. Um, and I think, you know, a, a lot of what is informed sort of the, the political efforts here in the Bay Area for trans folks was Gwen Araujo. Like mm. when she was murdered here in the, East, in the East Bay, in Fremont, you know, it brought folks together because they're like, this is in our own backyard. Like after, and we've had this incredible legacy, right? Of like Compton's Cafeteria Riots, all this kind of stuff. We have gay pride, it's the largest pride. And yet a trans youth is being murdered in our backyard, right? And so I think all those things, um, you know, the the cost of what we are not willing to do, like there is a cost, right? If we're not willing to risk something, there's going to be a cost. It might not be directly to you or your community, but there is a cost of not standing up in this moment um, and speaking truth to power and to really challenge sort of the ways in which these institutions are harming us. And so, you know, I think that Yes, not everyone is able to visit detention centers. Not everyone's able to go to, de to the border, but there are ways that you can support organizations that are doing that and to really identify who is actually thinking outside the box in this moment, who is actually innovating in this moment, who is actually creating um, and, and using like creative interventions to address some of these issues mm -hmm. um, that I think, you know, 
yeah, it, 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 there's ways that you can support that are direct and also just from behind the scenes. So I'm kind of wondering on the political side, any allies and a particular kind of national, because I kind of thought, you know, there were there are a lot of them who glommed on to the abolish ice thing. Yeah. And I'm wondering how many of those are using that to score some political points. Yeah. And we'll never introduce <laughs> a bill. We'll never support a bill. We'll come up with every reason not to do it. Right. And, you know, especially if they were using it in an election campaign. Once that phase is gone, they're they're on to something oh, else and they're not question. following up on any of these many other issues that you want them to look at. <laughs> <laughs> you all just want me to share all my secrets. She, um, she's like, how much time do you guys have? <laughs> um, yes. So for sure, there are folks that in this moment of, you know, kind of resist and going against Trumpism and, you know, kind of trying to score political points, trying to be trying to show up in this way that is um, under this like lens of like the radical left or whatever, kind of branding themselves in this, these ways that I think are, are very interesting to me. Um, because yeah, when we were sort of saying the same thing under Obama and when we were moving and we were like um, supporting interventions like Janisette uh, Gutierrez mm -hmm. interrupting the White House LGBT reception to denounce ICE and to say close down detention facilities, it was like crickets. Of like course. nobody was like, you know, and, and we saw in that moment how LGBT leaders were actually hushing and saying boo to a trans woman in that space. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so many examples uh, other than that as well of how folks didn't show up for us um, and they didn't show up when we asked them to. Um, and in these demands, they would like see us as antagonistic or, or want to water down sort of the strip away sort of the legislative pieces to make it more palatable so it can move. And I get, you know, there's always going to be priorities. Um, but if we don't have the political gumption and the will to push for a broad, uh, this bigger vision of what is possible of like ending detention, right? Or to say for California to say, we actually have this value that you know, we have these human rights values um, for immigrant communities and this vision for our communities that don't include detention facilities, right? And so I think to me, I've seen the political courage that small grassroots organizations have and how large organizations for sure have tried to co-opt that in this moment just so that they can garner um, some support um, in the media and support um, as they're being interviewed, um, you know, for various, you know, media outlets. And so I think, um, you know, I think the only thing that I can say that is, uh, you know, time will tell yeah. how folks continue to stick to their, to their talking points, how they, um, as there's openings, cause you know, guess what? This administration is also on a timeline, right? Like, the time is almost up for them and there's going to be a whole other fight that's going to happen soon. So what are we setting ourselves up for after this administration? How are we going to continue to hold these values after this administration? Um, and how do we start to prepare ourselves now? Ah, oh, there's so many questions, but I do want to leave some time for our audience today to ask questions for Issa. So we will, we will do that. Questions? Of course. Yes. Pat. <laughs> I always have a question. <clears throat> on a broader legal basis, yeah, the depth that this administration has gone to. Yeah. Just this week, I read about a man who's a naturalized citizen mm -hmm. from Central America who is being deported. Yeah. 
What are the legal ramifications of that? How does he bite that? I mean, this is a man who said he's earning $13 an hour. He's a legal citizen. How in the heck does he defend himself against this? And he's also a correctional officer, and he served, right, as a military service member. (laughs) Well, I think part of it, too, is just just like what has led to that sort of... um, what led to that sort of, and, and I think in particular for the immigrant rights, you know, we've, we've in some ways, we've hurt ourselves for so many years because we, we, there was this sort of messaging that the movement had around sort of like, you know, uh, you know, of who is deserving, who is deserving of rights, who is deserving of legal rights, legal protections, um, and citizenship, right? And so in that messaging, there was like, those that were not deserving. Like, if you're going to set yourself up, and if that's then there, that that means that there's folks that are not deserving, and and those folks often tend to be cr- folks that are criminalized, or folks that have felonies, or folks that have, you know, um, misdemeanors or whatever. And so those are the folks that, right off the back, like to set other folks up for success, whether it's the dreamers or whoever else, it meant that other folks would be thrown under the bus. And that messaging has really hurt the immigrant rights movement to now that we're seeing even folks that have some sort of protections like temporary protective status, like whatever kind of visa um, or um, even residence, right? That they are now on the chopping block because this administration is relentless right now with going again. There is a mandate from Jeff Sessions. There is a mandate from the Department of Justice to review the backlog, the current backlog of folks waiting in their in their cases for U visas or for whatever kind of visas opportunities that they have, and for folks that have already received visas, for folks that are received, you know, some sort of protection, some sort of um, status, and so that now like all of those institutions now USCIS, all Customs Border Patrol all of asylum officers, all these folks are now under this new mandate from Jeff Sessions, right? And so I think that is the dangerous part because they're trying to like enact out this rhetoric, right? And they're seeing how far they can push it. And so that's why it's important in these cases and these stories to really stand up, to really become come out against this because that is, they are going for, they're like pulling all the stops for sure. Um, and I think what we're seeing from a lot of organizations and from legal organizations is that they're trying to, you know, really kind of um, challenge this administration th- in the courts. And we are seeing some success in that. We are seeing success in the courts right now. Um, and so we have to continue to push that. And we have to continue to push the, the imagination of what is possible, even in the legal system. And especially cases that are complicated, especially cases that folks find often challenging representing someone that's been an immigrant that's been criminalized. Right. And so what does it mean to say everyone deserves humanity, even if they have, even if they have some committed, some sort of misdemeanor or or felony, right? Like how are we going to push that conversation? Mm. Hmm, yeah, I woke up this morning watching I Am a Killer uh, on Netflix, and I just started thinking about the whole incarceration process. But that's for a different day and a different <laughs> conversation, which we don't have time for. But I can't help but piggyback off of John's question about you know political or, or leaders or people who are campaigning or standing as elected official talking about this issue. I mean, um, at, at, hearing you, it sounded like there wasn't we, we can't tell yet in terms of being confident that we have mm-hmm. elected officials who are going to save the day. 
But someone like Kamala Harris has been very vocal yeah. uh, in standing for immigrant rights. What are your feelings? Not to lo- lobby a name that's specific, <laughs> but, but I would just start with California. I mean, I think our, there is definitely in California, we have a lot of representatives that there is a political will. And I think it's about keeping them sharp. I think it's about keeping them on their toes, making sure that they're being held accountable and that they are actually fully pushing the demands from the community, right? And that um, if there is sort of um, a legislative bill, if there is proposals in city council, um, that whatever passes at the end, that that is actually honoring all the suffering and all all the sort of, all that has happened to those that have been directly impacted by the issue. And so that to me is like a, a great sort of barometer around understanding how are we really transforming communities, right? And so, you know, often what we end up seeing is that the bill at the end or whatever passes is gets so watered down for many reasons, right? Because of, so, again, competing priorities. But I think to me, the here in California, um, there is sort of, we have a, a luxury to really push push beyond what is possible, like, and, and go and ask for more and ask for like, not just some, not just for private facilities, but for all contracts, for all like prisons, even non-immigration detention prisons to be thought of in a a different way, to go through some sort of revisioning process around how does this actually impact a community? Because it does. Like, unconsciously, consciously, it, it impacts the community's vibrancy and healthy sort of outcomes of what folks experience. And so I think that to me is, you know, continuing to make sure that elected officials are really connected to those that are directly impacted by the issue. So I made the point earlier, of course, that everyone has made this point, but um, about this being a core issue of Donald Trump. So he's not going to let go of it. No. Uh, he and his administration, probably they're, his they're, party. I mean, they're, they've, get, they've definitely gained success. Right. For sure. Does his ownership of the anti-immigration side make it uh, more possible for the Democrats than to be the actual pro-immigrant party? I mean, both parties have had ambiguous mm-hmm. and, and changing, you know, Labor unions often were, were yeah. opposed to in that kind of thing. But do you think this could be a time where the Democrats could look around and say, hey, look, I mean, forget about morality, just from political selfishness, hey, this would work for us. Time will tell. And <laughs> that's yeah. like, like it's, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't, I, because I, I, you're right. I, it's immigration is front and center for sure. They've seen that as being the wedge issue. Yeah to working class folks, to folks that are unemployed, to folks that are in communities that are economically depressed. When I think about where a lot of the proliferation of detention facilities are being located just geographically, they're in rural economically depressed communities. Because guess what? We have not done a great enough job to really address economic and you know, vibrancy in those communities. Mm-hmm. We've left them to figure it out for themselves. And so now you have these detention facilities that are taking advantage of that and yeah. saying, okay, so, you know, whoever, like whatever organizations or whatever government is not going to help, we're going to, we're going to like incentivize sort of coming here and we'll, you know, grow the increase of your, you know, sort of your community's vibrancy and healthy. Your population yeah. has yeah. increased by a thousand. They're in prison, but they're, it's increased right. by a thousand. And so I think, I don't know. I mean, I 
don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. I think that it's going to, I think there is sort of this understanding that the Democratic Party has been more um, uh, leaning towards immigrant rights as a whole and reform and, and have tried. And I think also what has been true for me and what has been true for a lot of immigrant rights organizers is that it's been also challenging to really push them to really understand the broader vision of, of what folks are asking for. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if all these leaders who are engaged in these immigrant rights conversations have actually been to a detention facility, yeah. have actually been to the border yeah. um, and really understood it in a very more intimate way. Yep, so true. Well, one last final question for you, and I always like to leave the program with hope. I mean, it, it, <laughs> what, we have no choice but to have hope at this point. I mean, I think you have a lot of that. So that, that's a given. Yeah. You keep doing this. You keep waking up and yeah. you even come to this show when you could be <laughs> at the border saving a life. Um, I guess my question is really, you know, Maybe maybe the goal of having you on here was really to shed some light, some real facts about what's going on, not just at the border, but you know, with all that's impacting all our communities. Mm. It, what if what if we all you know were listening to this program today and we just said, yeah, that sounds like it sucks, but we're still not going to do anything. We're just, we're just going to let this all play out. Yeah, and. Um, you know, give Donald Trump and his administration his way because yeah. we're on the road to making America great again. Oh, yeah. I want to throw up. Yeah, because I think that's what your core audience would think. Yeah. <laughs> but have you ever thought about that? Like if, we, you know, what would happen if we all just became complicit and we said we couldn't do this anymore? I mean, why we find ourselves in the situation is because to a certain extent, we, we in some ways, this administration, our society kind of handed over the silver plate platter to this administration, to Jeff Sessions, um, and to all of these bigots and racists. Um, we have decided to shy away from courageous conversations around race, um, around gender, um, around immigration. Um, we've just like, let's, let's window dress it, let's reform things, let's make things a little more palatable. Yet the growth of all of these institutions of detention facilities like it continues, mm -hmm. you know, and they're not stopping. They're not stopping. Core Civic has everything so strategically sound around how they build the facilities, who's going to staff it. It's like such a well-oiled machine. That didn't happen overnight. That took years for them to get to that place of expanding a facility in like they in San Diego. There's a facility in Otay, um, uh, the Otay facility that is it's brand new. And they're building 140 more beds, a whole wing in three months because it's all prefab and all this kind of stuff. So they have the technology and everything is just so like streamlined. And so I'm like, how did we get to this point mm. as a society, as a civilization here and with the values that we have of freedom and, and liberty and justice for all, like how did we get to this place? And so I think for folks to understand that there's so much at stake in this moment and there always has been and that... Um, at the forefront of all this has been those directly impacted by these by these systems of oppression, you know. And so I think to me the the moment of awakening and realization is so important, um, and to connect it to that consciousness, to understanding that we are all in this together, that your liberation is bound with my liberation, and that if we don't get that right in this moment, if we don't push ourselves to take risks, if we don't push ourselves to have those conversations, we're we're gonna lose so much more. 
something actually true and scary about what John said. Yeah. Or we'll all be in prison yeah, yeah. or incarcerated or caged. Uh, well, that concludes our program. Issa Noyolo, who's the program director for the Transgender Law Center, I urge you all uh, to share this, <laughs> the, her voice and her work, and of course, support the work of the Transgender Law Center as much as you can. Uh, this program is on Progressive Voices Network, Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. We're here every Thursday at uh, the Commonwealth Club at noon. Next week, we've got a program with Ken McNeely, who's uh, with AT&T, the regional president, on the 5th. And then on the 6th, we have Kat Brooks, who's running for mayor Yay. of Oakland. Um, so very exciting. She's amazing. Ta- yeah. Ex- uh, uh, thank you. Thank you all for joining us here. Uh, it's the Michelle Meow Show.